You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. Well, good morning. Um, Great to be uh, here again this morning. And uh, can I just say a big thank you once again to you, David, to the elders here, and to you for um, allowing me this huge privilege of... um, sharing in your life together over this past uh, couple of days. And Louise and I have just had a great time, and uh, thank you very much for that. And I'd like to ask you, if I might, to uh, turn together. It would be great if you could find a Bible nearby. Um, And we're going to read together from John's Gospel, and this is the passage that's going to guide our thinking together this morning. John 13, and in my Bible it's page 1081, which I think may well approximate to some of yours. Let's read this together. John 13. It was just before the Passover feast. Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world, go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, He now showed them the full extent of his love. The evening meal was being served and the devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his feet and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I'm doing, but later you will understand. No, no, said Peter. You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part in me. Then Lord Simon Peter replied, not not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, a person who has had a bath needs only to wash his feet. His whole body is clean and you are clean. Though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him, and that was why he said not every one was clean. When he finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example so that you should do as I have done for you. I tell you the truth, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, 
You will be blessed if you do them. Well, um, please do keep your fingers in, in that passage and we'll be looking at it together. That would be um, such a help. I love you. The easiest words in the world to say, aren't they? I love you. What does it mean? I love you because, uh, well, I feel attracted to you right now and as long as that feeling persists, I think there are some fun times ahead. Or I love you because of the way you make me feel right now, alive and valued and worthwhile, and I haven't felt like that before, and I need you to, to stay around in my life, to carry on loving me in that way. Or, I love you because I love me, and I want you. I love you, easy to say, but what does it mean? Well, in this passage that we're looking at this morning, Jesus shows us, as he shows his disciples, what he means when he says, I love you. It's what this passage is about. Look at verse 1. It was just before the Passover feast. Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Now, having loved his own who were in the world, he now shows them the full extent of his love. I love you. This is what that looks like, Jesus is saying and doing here. The full extent is love. Now, not that the disciples are trying very hard to make that an easy task for him, are they? you think of the run-up to this event, they've been arguing amongst themselves about who will be the greatest in the kingdom behind his back. He just goes on loving them. They, over, over the chapters that preceding, they can never quite seem to get what he's saying. And I don't know about you, but you know, you try to explain what you mean and someone, they just don't get you. And you try again and they still You've never quite clicked with this person. They never quite get you. They're, they're so hard to love people like that, aren't they? And they never got Jesus. He just goes on loving them. And now, in these final hours of his life, it seems that they will test his love to destruction. They will betray him. They will deny him. They will abandon him. And here in this final act of pride in which they will refuse to serve one another, they will disappoint him again. And through it all, it says he just goes on loving them until finally he'll give his life for them, John tells us along with all of us for the sins of the whole world. I love you. This is what it looks like, says Jesus. Well, let's dig into this story um, a bit more. I was interested in our New Testament reading in Matthew. We got that little phrase, the Pharisees plotted to kill him. And that's the backdrop to this story that we've 
parachuted into together this morning, isn't it? The storm clouds are gathering around Jesus and the political and religious authorities are laying their plans to have him taken out. And in a way, I don't know about you, I I think the insurgencies, the events in the Middle East over the past few years maybe help us to see the situation a little through some of their eyes. How the threat of terrorism puts people on edge, it puts the authorities on edge, and there was terrorism around at the time. The need to maintain order, to nip potential ringleaders, to nip it in the bud. The the instinctive sense authorities have to preserve the status quo and to protect their own privileges and position. We see all of that. And they haven't yet invented drones in this culture, but they have got Jesus of Nazareth in their sights. And they want to take him out. In a parallel passage, Luke 22, uh, Luke very helpfully gives us a bit more of this backdrop to these events in the upper room. Um, He says, verse 2, and the chief priests... Luke 22, and the teachers of the law were looking for some way to get rid of Jesus because they were afraid of the people and what would happen and what would be stirred up. And so they begin to lay their plans. But what Luke really interestingly shows us in this chapter 22, from round about verse 10 onwards, that whilst they are laying their plans to have Jesus taken out, Jesus is laying his plans. And then in a lovely little story, a vignette, there's that funny old story where Jesus sends, who does he send along? I think it's Peter and John. He sends them ahead and that funny old story, he says, I want you to look for a chap, just head on in Jerusalem, and then look for somebody carrying, carrying a, a pot, and you'll spot him, and then I just want you to follow him down the street, down that street. You follow him, and eventually he'll go into a house, and you follow him right into the house, and then you say to him, what do we say to him? Follow him into the house. Say to the owner of the house, the teacher asks Where is the guest room where I might eat the Passover with my disciples? And he'll take you upstairs to a large upper room, all furnished. Jesus seen it? Don't know. Had he been and had a chat with the owner of the house already? I don't know. Did he he know that this chap carried somebody in the house, carried this pot at a particular... I don't know. But what's clear is that Jesus has laid his plans it's all ready and he says all you need to go is get there to the upper room it's all prepared for you and you set it up for when we arrive it's all planned the jewish authorities on the one hand busy laying their plans moving into an alliance with judas but jesus on the other hand laying his plans in control in authority and now as John connects us with that background narrative here in verse 
2, he takes the story forward to us. He tells us, he's introduced us to this upper room. Now he tells us what is going to happen next. And it's quite interesting how John takes this story forward because he tells us, first of all, that there's the front story. The front story is there in verse 2. The evening meal was being served. And the devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to betray Jesus. The front story. But but then, next comes the back story, verse 3. Do you see that? Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power. And that he had come from God and was returning to God. So it's almost as if John connects us with Luke's idea that there's human plans and then there's God's plans, you see. There's the front story and the back story. So Judas, he's he's plotting how he gets out of here, when he goes, who he's got to meet, what the deal was. He's still in conflict, supposedly in his heart over what's going. The drama is heightening on the front of the stage, but at the behind all of this is this magisterial story um, Luke John says that Jesus knowing that all things had been put at his feet by the father and that he'd come from the father and he was returning to the father that is the back story behind Jesus laying those plans to get them to this upper room in the first place It's all in the plan. And what happens next as this story unfolds that our humans here think they're plotting and planning but Jesus has it all planned behind the scenes. What happens next, John tells us, going back to the end of verse 1, is that Jesus shows them in this upper room the full extent of his love, what he means when he says he loves them. And he does it in three ways. He shows them its passion, its power, and love's purpose. Now, I won't say that again because I don't do alliteration very often, so it's a special treat, okay? It's passion, it's um, power, and it's purpose. Those things, that's what he wants to show them about his love in these following verses. Let's take passion first. You see that little word, so? Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his feet. So he got up from the meal, verse 4, took off his outer clothing, wrapped a towel around his waist, poured water into a basin, and then went round his disciples, washing their feet. And you say... I don't know, I'm not sure there's a lot of passion in that. I wouldn't have put feet washing under the heading passion. But I do, and I'll tell you why. Ever had a foot massage? Feet are quite private things, actually, aren't they? If you think about it, they're kind of tickly, they're personal, they're private. I don't think anybody here would like for the person next to you just now to take your shoes off, peel away the sock. Would you? 
And it's only early in the day, for goodness sake. We haven't got to tonight yet. But just imagine it. They kneel down, peel it off. You haven't walked through the streets of Jerusalem. You haven't got dung between your toes. Um, they, they don't know about the bit on the back of your heel where, where the grime gets in and it can be hard and you didn't quite. And that it's very personal to let that person next to you into, into this, this area of your private space, isn't it? And you say, well, yes, but this is a different culture. They were used to foot washing in this culture, you see. And that is true. They did it all the time because if you wear open sandals through the streets of Jerusalem, hordes of animals and dung and dirt, and um, you need to have your feet washed before a meal. But the point is that this would be largely undertaken in a formal way, in a kind of a professional way. It was done by a servant. It was a designated role, which kind of professionalized it. It it was generally assigned somebody at the bottom of the heap, the cheapest laborer you could find, the slave, the serpent, a woman if you're really stuck different culture so there was a kind of a professionalism around it think about the difference if you're at the hairdresser the hairdresser runs his fingers through your hair or the barber very different than you're sitting at your desk at work and a colleague walks by and runs their finger (laughs) through your hair it's exactly the same exactly the same procedure Very different context. And my point is here that Jesus broke those professional boundaries dramatically here. And he washes their feet as their friend. And that's a different kind of foot washing. In fact, more than their friend, he he washes their feet as one who knows them as his own. Do you notice that little phrase there, his own? He loved back there in verse 1, in the second part, having loved his own who were in the world. And that's a special phrase, his own. It has a meaning of commitment. It's not simply the love that he had for the lepers and the poor and the blind and and the destitute as he reached out to them. This is, this, is a diff- this is a love for his own. And it has the sense of compassion, but with the twist of faithfulness, of covenant, of marriage, to connect with what we were saying last night. His own. And, and we see that God himself stoops down in a kind of a cameo of Philippians as he lays aside his glory. Now, God himself stoops down at the feet of his own and in this rather intimate way shows just how much he loves them, cares for them. So there's passion here, actually. He really does care about these guys. And, you know, it can be hard to let God stoop 
to love you, can't it? Look at Peter in verses 6 through 11. He shows us that. He exposes our own hearts there. Do you see it? Lord, he says, are you going to wash my feet? Verse 6. You can see what's at the back of his mind because um, rabbis don't wash feet. Let alone friends. Rabbis don't wash feet. Messiahs certainly don't wash feet. Gods don't wash feet. So let's say that, geez, are you going to wash my feet? No, 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 no. This is a rhetorical question. In fact, he follows it up in a moment's time when he, he, he says, you shall never wash my feet. Let's get that clear. Because there are all kinds of boundaries being broken here that make me feel both creepy and also resistant because it undermines who you are as our Messiah. And Jesus says, unless I wash your feet, Peter, you can't be part of me. You, you can't be one of my own. Doesn't, it doesn't square with being one of my own, not letting me wash your feet. You can't be part of my ongoing ministry without letting me do this for you. This is what it means to be one of my own, Peter. I wash your feet. And Peter gets that. He gets that Jesus is saying, you're putting something at risk here. This is integral to our relationship. So Jesus, because he loves Jesus, Peter, because he loves Jesus, says, then, then give me a shower. Give me the whole lot. I want everything kind of washed, Jesus, because I love you and I want your love, really. And Jesus, what he says next is, is a bit difficult to follow, but, but actually it, it it's, it's pretty clear. Jesus says, verse 10, a person who has had a bath, look there, a person who's had a bath needs only to wash his feet. His whole body's clean, and you're clean. He says, if you're one of my own, if you're one of my own now, you're in. You had the bath. You've let me love you, but you've got to let me go on loving you. And washing you, and feeding you, and cleansing you, forgiving you. You've got to let me go. You've got to let me do it. And there's the thing, friends, as we, as we were saying yesterday morning, it would be hard to let God love you, can't it? To let God forgive you. And, and we've got to let God love us too. You've got to let God Love you too. And sometimes we find it hard to let him love us in this intimate way. Um, we put up a kind of a cultural barrier. We say it's not English, it's not Scottish, it's not Presbyterian, it's not the way I express myself in this way, buttoned up, me. And, and that can be a cultural journey. And Jesus says, you need to make that journey. Because knowing me is being one of my own. It's being drawn into the passion, the love of God. It's what this is all about. It's not rule keeping. 
It's not putting a suit on. It's entering into the love of God who reaches into our hearts and says, you, you're my own. So sometimes there's a cultural journey to make, but often, friends, it's just pride that keeps him at bay. And it's the hardness of our hearts. And we don't want somebody invading our personal space. He will wipe away every tear. You've got to get close to wipe away a tear. We don't want anybody to do that for us. Thank you very much. Because you've got to admit dependency and weakness. And sometimes some of us guys find that hard to admit it. We know what our hearts are really like. But we find it hard on the outside. Some of, all of us find that hard. You've got to let him love you, friends, as you are. In your guilt, let him forgive you. We were saying yesterday morning, in your shame, it's not just that you've done stuff, it's you're the, the sort of person who does this stuff. Let him forgive you in your shame and make you one of his own in your shame. And then as your shame comes and goes and it taps you on your shoulder, let him go on loving you. So here in this washing of feet, we see these proud, ignorant, willful feet. And Jesus says, I want to wash them. The passion of his love, the first P. And there's the power He shows us something of the power of his love and the power of love in these verses. And we kind of scratch our heads at this point. We say, well, I I see, most people see this passage as a kind of an example of weakness. You know, um, there's a standoff amongst the disciples because this is slave work. And we're not going to do that because it's not part of our identity. Who we are to stoop in this way, we follow the big rabbi. And so there's a standoff, so it's who's going to give in first, you see? Who's the weak one among us? And Jesus says, oh, okay, I'll do it, you see? And it's the person who doesn't have the self-respect. It's the way we often approach this kind of vignette, this scenario, isn't it? So is this a story of weakness? Is it the weakness of love? No, what I want to suggest to you is that it... It's a story of the power of love. What do I mean? Well, well, look, think of what's happening here. The power to rise above the need for other people's approval. The power to rise above social expectations and norms and what messiahs normally do and what they don't and what slaves normally do and don't do. Think about having the power to rise above what other people tell you you should be doing right now. Messiahs don't wash feet. Think about having the power to say, well, this one does. Isn't that power? Isn't that dignity? Isn't that strength? Think about the power to get a hearing you know, I'm lucky this morning. I'm, I'm kind of getting a hearing. But, you know, you're in a conversation. There's a few folk around. It's hard to kind of break in and get a hearing. I tell you, 
with the moment Jesus stands up in this room and begins to take off his clothes, he gets a hearing. Everybody in the room goes quiet. They're chatting over there. They go quiet. The whole room, the atmosphere is electric. Jesus brings this room right to where he wants them. Power. Think about the power to influence, to change people's minds. Peter says, you'll never wash my feet. Jesus says a couple of sentences. And then he says, give me the whole bath. And he's on his knees. Power. Do you see Jesus' power over these disciples? The power to command respect. The dignity of knowing who one is in one's identity. Verse 13, when he had finished washing their feet, 12. Look at that, verse 12, look, look there, and 13. He put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you, he asked? You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. The power to say, and rightly so. Teacher, the great rabbi, that's what that word means. Lord, a word sometimes used of Caesar himself. You call me the great teacher, the great Lord, the emperor, and so I am. Power, the dignity of knowing who one is. And then the power to issue commandments, to give orders. What, what comes next? He says, I've set you an example, verse 15, that you should do as I've done for you. I tell you the truth. No servant is greater than his master. So I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. So the great rabbi and the great Caesar now takes his seat and says, rightly so. Now he issues his orders. As I have loved, you love. Power. And from, and from those orders, these, this rabble, a bunch of men went out, and we sit here because of what they did. We're sitting here now because these men heard what Jesus said, and they did what he wanted. That's power, isn't it? Do you see the power of Jesus' love at work here? We say, if you want power, you've got to go up. Jesus goes down in these verses on his knees and he washes feet, but he shows how powerful that can be. And, and we say, Jesus, what's the secret of your power? What gives you that? Because I'd like a piece of this. Not to lord it over people. But if I'm honest, Jesus, you know, if we've been, as we've been talking, when other people, their expectation, I feel I've got to live up to them. And I, I feel I'm tossed here and there and by what people do and say. And I see in myself a craving for status and admiration and to be liked. Is there anybody here who wouldn't want something of this power? This inner sense of strength, of knowing who I am, what I'm here for, that lifts me above those expectations. Well, it, the, the answer is in our third P. It's in P. 
purpose. It's in purpose. Look back at verse 3. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power. He's going to show them what, what that power looks like. But, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. In that verse, we hoover up the great purpose of God to send his only son into the world who in his earthly submission to his father dies for the sins of the world and then returns to his father with a host, a host of people from history, past, present and future, who he calls his brothers and sisters in Christ. And he returns and he says, here we are. And that was his purpose. And the secret of, of knowing something of his power and something of his passion in our lives is, is to know something of our purpose. And our purpose is to bear his image well in the world. We're in Christ. People bore that name Christian in the past with pride, dignity. It centered them. It gave them strength to rise above other people's expectations, to be distinctive. And then it drove them out to love. And the message here in verse 15 is Jesus is saying, you, you call me Master and Lord? then make me master and Lord in your life and bear my image as your master and Lord. And as I have loved you, you love one another. And go the extra mile and stoop. And where, where your instinct is to go up, go down. And in doing that, you'll not only discover life for the world and bring life for the world, you bring life to your own heart, image bearers, bear his image well. And so you, you see the secret of his power, and his passion, was he knew his purpose, and his purpose was rooted in his identity. He knows who he is in verse 3, where he's come from, where he's going to. And if you are a believer this morning, that is what you know in Christ. You know where you've come from, from dust, but molded by the hands of God in his own image. You know where you're going to. And now he says, bear my image well. Stand in that identity. But identity for us as Christians doesn't turn us in on ourselves. It pushes us out into the world to be creative and to love as he loves here, laying down his life. David Putnam, the film producer, he, uh, what did he do? Chariots of Fire, didn't he? David Putnam. He once said, he gave people, he, he, he gave he told them the, the secret of what makes him tick as a person. What gives him power to produce films. What, what drives him on in his passions. And do you know what he said? 
What makes me tick? He said this, and I quote, far more than any other influence, more than school, more even than home, my attitudes, dreams, preconceptions for life have been irreversibly shaped five and a half thousand miles away in a place called Hollywood. That's quite a thing to say. He said, Hollywood so captured my imagination. Hollywood, films, producers, directors, stars. It so drew me, it so captivated me, it wanted me, and I wanted it. Hollywood. That I'd say now, he said, it so shaped my life that it's had a more of an effect than, than my parents, than my home. Than, that's quite a thing to say. And so do we. This is our story. That far more than all those things, what must remake us, restory our identity, is that we were called before the foundation of the world in Christ to be his image bearers and to bear his image well. And where the world says go up, to go down and to stoop and to serve. And I I tell you, um, friends, it's just been such a blessing for us to be here um, in this church, just watching, I was watching the girls heaving around um, (laughs) these settees last night and how people jump to help and the cooking and the serving at the tables. Each of these little acts is an act of image bearing. We bear God's image as we do that. And, and to meet young people who've got married and who are falling in love and others who are carrying in their singleness a chastity, which is beautiful because they honor the faithfulness of God in their, in their sexuality. And to see ministry. And to, to see people involved in the city. In counseling and in adoption services. And, and then in science and technology. Bearing his image well. And, and as we stoop to serve in every one of those situations. We will never become less. The gospel says you'll always be more. In the end we're always more. And that's how Jesus finishes here, verse 17. Now that you know these things, he says, you'll be blessed if you do them. And that's always the case with God's grace. You're always blessed. Always more. Let's just pray for a moment. Thank you so much, Lord. Holy Spirit of God, thank you for your word. Thank you that you inspired John to write these words. But now we lean into you and ask that you will open our eyes to not just remember what you said, but to want it, to to live it. And we pray that you'll change us. We pray for each other, those of us who who you're calling to do business with you just now. to to come clean, to lay down our hearts, to seek your forgiveness. We pray for each other. Those of us who are struggling with your spirit to do business, bear down on us, Lord, we pray.
And every one of us who's felt crushed and beaten down, Lord, help us to rise up in our identity in Christ and with pride and thanksgiving to bear his image well. Tomorrow, the day after, in Jesus' name, amen. We're going to finish by... Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening. Thank you.